This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong Associate Director at JMU Civic, and also co-hosting with me today is Abe Goldberg, Executive Director. Hi, Abe. Hey, Kara. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Today we have joining us Linda Plitt Donaldson. She's Associate Dean of the College of Health and Behavioral Studies and also Director of the Institute for Innovation in Health and Human Services. Welcome, Linda. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Uh, We also have with us Superstar Assistant Professor in Health Sciences, (laughs) Laura Merrill. Hi, Laura. Hi, thank you for having me. Today we're going to be having a conversation about health equity and inequities. So really appreciate both of you sharing your insights and expertise. So we know from a range of measures and statistics that Americans today are living shorter lives and sicker lives than people in other developed countries. And across the nation, health varies by income, education, race and ethnicity, and geography. Warning that the United States will pay the high price in lost lives, wasted potential, and squandered potential resources until these gaps are closed. A comprehensive report from the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine has called for leaders across sectors to make health equity a priority for the nation. I wonder if you both could start by explaining what health equity is and why everyone should care about it, and also if you can talk a little bit about the social determinants of health. Health equity and inequity is sort of a foundational understanding within public health, which is my discipline. Health equity means that everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. And that requires removing obstacles to health, such as poverty, discrimination, and their consequences, including powerlessness and lack of access to good jobs with fair pay, quality education, and housing, safe environments, and health care. So that was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And I would just add, so the latter part of what Laura just said is she was really describing what the social determinants of health are, that that health, a healthy person is a lot more than just do you have health insurance? That's important. Do you have access to a health care provider? That's important. But what the research has shown is what's even more important. 50% of a person's health status is determined by those uh, factors your housing status, your education, whether you feel safe in your neighborhood or whether you feel a sense of belonging in your community, your job status, your economic stability, whether you have access to transportation and food access. So all of those elements are related to, are the social determinants of health. And again, that's 50% (laughs) determining how healthy somebody is. And the other piece is, you know, health access, insurance status, that's, that's uh, 30, 20%. And then lifestyle behaviors, I'm doing emotions with my hand, imagining a pie chart, right, is um, kind of your own healthy behaviors. So these social determinants are critical. Uh, they've noted, they've, they've decided, they've, they've uh, finally observed that we need to pay attention to all those other factors to ensure people have health equity. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit how talk a little bit more about how racism factors into health equity. So I, particularly with maternal health, obviously our access to health care is is really important. And even though 
you know, in the United States, if you are uninsured, we have abilities for people to be able to access healthcare while they're pregnant. That doesn't mean that they're accessing it early in their pregnancy. So therefore they might be experiencing health issues that might impact the outcomes of their pregnancy. But further than that, you know, people who are living in poverty are experiencing racism. They're also experiencing stress, which impacts their health long-term. Beyond that, when they're in, you know, particularly African-American women, um, when they're in the health system, you know, there's, there's issues in terms of how the diagnoses that health providers make for black women compared to white women, whether or not they listen to whether or not they are experiencing pain, which could be an indication of a, a major health issue. And as a result, you know, even all, all factors being equal, even when we have highly educated, socially upwardly mobile black women, their health is poorer than lower educated, poorer white women in terms of their maternal outcomes. We have a major epidemic um, when it comes to maternal and child health in the United States. So discrimination touches on a lot of aspects of healthcare. Yes, I want to build on that. That's so important. I mean, actually, let me just say what you're reminding me of before, when I was living in DC, you talked about maternal health. And this is part of the built environment, right? The built environment matters. And certainly, you know, sort of where our healthcare, that health access is an issue. And we closed one of the, you know, the only hospital in one section of the city that was used by a predominantly African-American population and provided the maternal health care for, for black women in the city of DC. So other issues, the role of racism and health status, you know, Laura mentioned the, all of the, I mean, issues related to diagnosis and treatment of people of color due to unconscious bias and perhaps uh, conscious bias, right, of medical providers. But also we know that racism, and there are recent studies on this, impacts access to affordable quality housing, right? So the Urban Institute did a very important study that sort of sent sort of a blind study of, of people with ethnic names and non-ethnic names and the exact same qualifications and people with ethnic names or people who were black were, were denied housing uh, with the same backgrounds as people who were white. Also in the employment sector, pe white people with criminal backgrounds have higher rates of employment, <laughs> of, of hiring, than blacks that have no uh, convictions or no, no charges. Another study done by the Urban Institute. So there's bias in, 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 those, uh, in housing and employment, and that determines where you're living. So neighbors, neighborhoods are under-resourced, right, with transportation, with quality food, and all those things that we were talking about before. It impacts the educational systems, the schools. So all of these things are um, impact people's health. Linda, you mentioned the built environment and access to a hospital in one's neighborhood. I wonder if you could also address the built environment in terms of the way in which American communities really suburbanized in the second half of the 20th century, particularly as it relates to the proliferation of the single family house and car dependency and in what ways did that kind of dominant model of development affect healthy lifestyles, the health equity for those who were not able to live in such conditions, 
to where everything was dependent on having a car. Yeah, do you want me to start or do you want to start? Well, I will just say that I'm not <laughs> a health geographer, uh, which this has a lot to do with, but um, the suburbanization <laughs> of you know, white uh, middle American families really is a, a reaction to the civil rights movement and the fact that, you know, there were, you know, before that time, you know, you had redlined communities uh, where African-Americans were, you know, in African-American neighborhoods and there wasn't a possibility to buy a house in, um, you know, a richer, uh, you know, neighborhood, which was predominantly white um, and how that impacted, um, you know, them staying in closed communities for the most part. But then when some of those laws were struck down as being unconstitutional and you start to see the movement of African-American, particularly middle-class families into um, urban neighborhoods that were more affluent but also more white, that's when you start to see the, you know, white flight to the suburbs. And with those, you know, groups of people, you know, you took a lot of the tax base that supports social services like education, you know, like health programs, um, and that has severely impacted, you know, the urban versus rural differences or urban versus suburban versus rural differences. Um, but you can't separate that from um, the racial issues that caused all that. Yeah, I mean, just to build a little bit more on what Laura was saying, I mean, this was even, this is sort of the post-World War II, right? The GI Bill, you know, when soldiers were coming home, black soldiers and white soldiers who fought together, right, came home and were living in segregated communities. And then the GI Bill, which offered uh, down payments for homes, was differentially applied to white uh, soldiers. And even black soldiers who were supposed to be getting that were, were cut out of that. They were, they were actually exclusive underwriting practices <laughs> that barred blacks from entering certain neighborhoods and buying certain homes. And that's part of the redlining that Laura was referring to, which contributed to the differential, the, the, the extreme gap in wealth of, between black and white families that has been exacerbated over the years because of the disinvestment in the black, quote, black neighborhoods and the lack of access into other neighborhoods that were had more investment and more services that has perpetuated this wealth divide and enabled white families to continue like to, to use their their home as their nest egg right as their bank account that they borrow from because they can get the equity to fund their children's education right and this just perpetuates and and black families and families of color don't have that same kind of access and this kind of predatory, these predatory practices continue. Like the Center for Responsible Lending has a lot of uh, good literature and research on the interest rates, right? Mm -hmm. The families of color have compared to white families. You know, we, we're now in an environment with low interest rates. Anyhow, the point of this, we're talking about health equity, right? That's yep. the theme. But Abe asked about the built environment and we're in the whole process of suburbanization and the exclusion of families of color and, and sort of the, build, the, the growing of middle America, quote, middle America, has contributed to yeah. the, the poor health status. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the cost uh, that is incurred um, you know, to individuals, but also more broadly to society because of health inequity. 
Well, I, I just want to say that there's not an area of human health that is not impacted by inequality, like literally not one health issue. So, you know, your race, where you live, your zip code um, determines like the average lifespan that you might have, um, you know, your wealth, your education. Obviously, there is a major human cost to that. You know, we have people who cannot, despite their individual efforts, reach a certain level in terms of their health and wellness, who will not live as long as they should, um, that they should have had the opportunity uh, to have access to lots of different resources. But it also hurts us monetarily. Um, so health disparities are costly. Um, there are tons of analysis that look at this from every possible angle, um, but excess medical costs that are attributed to health disparities and health inequality are about $93 billion a year. And um, if we talk about lost productivity and economic losses due to premature deaths, it's probably another $42 billion. You know, we talk about being the biggest economic power, um, but this also goes back to the human cost that if people are, if children are hungry and they're, and they're not getting their chronic health um, care needs addressed, they have asthma, you know, they're not going to learn the best. And that's even if we're not talking about the differences in education. And then they're not going to college and they're not gaining the skills um, they need to, you know, be productive members of our community um, and, you know, make those technology and, and entertainment and, you know, agriculture, you know, all those things we want our community members to be able to achieve and do. Can you speak to structural and policy changes that would ensure access to affordable health care? And how can we better advocate for equity and health outcomes? I would argue that we need universal health care. Um, I think that it's uh, the tying of health care to employment was basically an accident of um, sort of what was happening in World War II when there was a labor shortage and employers uh, were wanting to give incentives for people to um, work and they were adding employment to uh, a, a, as a benefit of work because the, there was not the political will at the time to pass national insurance. I mean, this is something that Roosevelt wanted to do, mm -hmm. but was not politically feasible. I think there's been wide recognition over the years, the many years that we need um, universal, universal health care. We spend more, maybe Laura probably knows the figures on how much we spend per capita compared to every other yeah. <laughs> country. And it's outrageous. It's you wanna many, I don't know the specific numbers, but it's many times more. But the return on investment is much less um, than other countries. And you know, politicians on many sides of the aisle have been, you know, doom and gloom about universal health care, and have been saying that Canada and m many of the countries in Western Europe that have universal health care that you know they were rushing towards a cliff and they were going to fall off and we were going to be left standing going we told you so but guess what <laughs> 50 years on and it has not happened and it's not to say that those countries don't have some issues with how they provide um, health care to their citizenry but guess what 
they still provide it and their citizens are so much healthier than we are. They will live longer than we do. So I think that Linda's absolutely right. The type of healthcare system we have, you know, I don't even think we really have a healthcare system. It definitely doesn't work like integrated with the, with all of the separate parts. But this is going to be a structural issue because our country is becoming much more diverse. And it's said that by 2050, I think that half of our population will be people of color. And if we don't change, you know, how people of color, how low-income people, the access of, to resources that they have, then you will only see widening problems. Uh, yeah, um, I was just about to say that that universal health care is, is one wrong that addresses that health idea, but we started this podcast by talking about the social determinants of health. <laughs> So we need to have structural policy change, structural change that addresses all those other dimensions. You know, I feel like right now, we're at a time where we have three pandemics, COVID-19, racism, and climate change. Mm -hmm. All three have the theme of breathing, breathing, right? So can we, what can we do to address those three? If we, if we made some steps toward addressing climate change, environmental regulations, and all the, the toxins, you know, that we are bringing into our planet and into our bodies, uh, that, that would have a, a big impact on our health. We, we talked about some of the healthcare issues. I think we have some significant work that needs to be done at the community level that actually needs to be funded and fueled and supported. There's a lot of what I call community weaving, reweaving, community building work that we need to do to help each other have some intelligent, some uh, intentional conversations. That's a really hard ask. I mean, th th and I could go on. I mean, there's a lot of structural change that needs to be done. I mean, I, I, housing is another piece. I mean, I've been, my career has been in housing and homelessness. And I have been, the last few years, I've been talking about housing as healthcare because of all the research that is showing what stable housing does in terms of people's health status, even their educational, improve, improving academic outcomes, food security, upward mobility for families that have a stable base to take care of other aspects of their lives. There's many things that housing provides, safe, affordable, decent housing that you can't prescribe from a doctor. So uh, a housing policy change is critical as well. I'm wanting to say, before I just add, say what we're doing, you know, I think to me one of the core problems of, of our society, of our country, is we've become such an individualistic nation. I think we have toxic individualism happening in our country. And, and so th we need to do, we used to be, I mean, I know people were left out of it, but, but you know, it's at one point, we were a little bit more of a communitarian, uh, a community-minded group. We talked about a social contract. The social contract is, you know, deeply frayed, right? And uh, I don't even know how it feels. So that's something that we, we have to sort of help our students see that we're all in this together. And I think, I think we have a long way to go, by the way, at, at our institution and in our college, and that's been recognized by our leadership. You know, the, uh, the provost has her, is, is charging us with her anti-racist, anti-discrimination agenda for the university, which is fantastic. And that challenges us 
to do more uh, with our faculty, with our students, with our curriculum. So actually, the good news, I think, is at least in our college, CHBS, we are in the process of being very intentional about really reviewing our curriculum. I mean, it's good to have the population health class, and this needs to be in many other places uh, all throughout our curriculum and all of our disciplines because we need to be able to battle the unconscious bias. We're preparing providers. Uh, you know, um, Laura said it, physician's assistants, nurses, occupational therapists, dietitians, social workers, you know, nurses. I mean, all of the people who have to be helping a range of people, the way that we prepare them for the workforce, the future, you know, the world that we're entering into is being intentional about all those DEI efforts. And we are in process. We've got a long way to go. I think also even at the Institute where we have nine clinics and 16 community-based programs that are doing fantastic work um, and serving uh, and partnering with a very diverse community we need to examine more, well, how is it? What does our relationship look like, right? How is, is it truly reciprocal? Are we really trying to break down the power differentials in those relationships? So there, there is great work being done and there is some equitable work being done and there's a lot more left, left to do. I, I think that Linda's absolutely correct in terms of thinking about our communities um, and working with them and that helps to build some of this social capital, I guess, um, you know, I, I do think that there is a lack of trust uh, in, in many ways, and we care less about, you know, our, our community members, even if we don't know them. You know, I had really tough conversations with my brother over the summer about mask wearing, mm -hmm. and this is a person who was raised in the same house as me, has, I think, the same values who is proud that his sister is a professor of public health but still we went back and forth about well you know he just felt like he didn't like that somebody was telling him what to do and that it was an infringement upon his rights and i was like but what about everybody else what are their rights so those are tough conversations to have as an individual again you know if, if i'm only looking out for me then who cares about you know, housing and, and the, the environment and, you know, poverty, because I'm okay. Um, I don't know. It's, a, it's tough. What can individuals do to address health inequities? What is it that you say to your students on how they can be part of the change, as we like to say at JMU? Inequalities are structural in nature. And so individuals have to have some way to address those structural needs. And so for me, it's it's holding all, it's holding, you know, people accountable. It's holding our lawmakers accountable. It's holding our, you know, our healthcare providers when they treat us differently or they say something that is offensive to let them know that it was. Because we're, we're trained to just not, you know, to see healthcare providers as an authority figure and to, you know, just go about, um, you know, I guess there's that saying that all politics are local, but so is your health. And so it's working with our communities um, to make them more just. And it, not just the community that I'm a part of, but, you know, all of my neighbors. You know, if I have, if there are people in my community who 
are unhoused or who don't have access to mental health treatment or don't have access to quality healthy food that's also on me and that's you know really hard I think Linda and the Institute are doing some really great work around some of those issues well I mean before I get to the Institute I mean you're Abe you're asking uh, I was the professor who was the chair of our of the social change program at uh <laughs> at the Catholics Catholic University's uh, social work program. You know, we used to always say policy impacts practice and practice impacts policy, right? And here we are in a College of Health and Behavioral Studies and this of all the disciplines that we're training people for, can it impacts po the policy. It should be impacting the policy because what I used to tell my students is you don't want to be apologists for a terrible system. You know, you don't want to have to influence and do things that you know is in the worst interest of your of your people you're serving or working with. So it's critical. In fact, I think in our professions, the, the professions that we're preparing our students for, those are in some of the best points from which health equity advocacy, defined as broadly as you could in terms of environmental advocacy, uh, healthcare access advocacy, service advocacy, anti-racism work, housing justice, all of those things with our, which to me are health issues, they are in a perfect perspective. And what I also think is important, that we need to do this in partnership with our community members because mm -hmm. what's the worst thing is you have these profession, you know, graduates, well-meaning people want to save communities, right? I'm doing save in quotes. What we really need to be doing is being in solidarity with our brothers and sisters and actually recognizing that those who are closest to the problem are actually the true experts. So we, we asked this final question of all of our guests. What would each of you do to strengthen democracy? Well, the first thing, I mean, you're asking, this is my wish list, right? The very, oh, yes. <laughs> the very first thing I would do, the thing that must happen is getting money out of politics. That's the number one thing. And I, you know, we've got to really work on that because uh, that's really distorting democracy. That's where I would start. I think that gets to my issue of um, trust. You know, I think that our citizens don't trust our government in many ways. And, you know, that, that's the building block of a strong relationship. So what is, what could be more important than the relationship we have as a citizen of this country? Part of the problem is, is that, you know, we, people don't trust that, um, you know, that their dollar is, is worth the same as somebody else's, you know, when they're pumping millions and millions into preventing them from achieving their rights. That's why, only half the people who are eligible to vote vote is because mm -hmm. they don't trust that their voice matters or that the people in charge making policies are going to do anything for them. Well, that was my second. My second thing is making voting easier. So voter registration should be easy. You know, we in Maryland, in, in D.C., I mean, in Virginia, where am I now? Uh, we, you do. You can get right when you go for your driver's license. You can get you can re get registered, and um, uh, that's that's good. There are other ways to make voting e registration easy, and then we need to make voting itself as easy as possible and not put up barriers. That would be fabulous. That's another. That's my second. That's my second thing. 
Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Caitlin Waltmeyer, a senior media arts and design major. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about us at j.mu slash civic. Until next time.